Jesus left Judea to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria, so he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then John helps you by putting a little parenthetical sentence in, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. The woman then said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? This is the word of the Lord. One of the most significant archaeological digs in all of Israel is at a place called Beth Shean. Many are not familiar with Beth Shean, but it's mentioned prominently in the Hebrew Scriptures. King Saul, first king of the tribes after they arrived in Canaan, and his sons were killed on Mount Gilboa. Their bodies brought down from the side of that hill and nailed to the wall at Beth Shean, so that all could see how powerful the Philistines were. Bethshean was a major stop on a trade route from ancient Persia all the way to Egypt. Many believe that it was such a caravan moving from Persia to Egypt to which Joseph was sold by his brothers. It's called the Bethshean Gap. It was destroyed hundreds of years ago by a massive earthquake. The whole Jordan River Valley is on a fault line where the Asian plate, the European, and the African plates all push up together. It is a significant place called the Betshean Gap. And what that means is there is a place through the hills so that you can move across the Jordan through that little gap and on up to Galilee. So when we read that Jesus had to go through Samaria, we know he didn't have to go through Samaria. That what John is trying to say is that he had to 
because something significant was going to take place there. And that's the story we have today. I've underlined four things for you to think about. Number one, they arrived at a small town called Sychar. Right nearby, there was a wonderful well, 1,800 years old. It's about seven feet across in diameter. It has been paved with brick all the way down. It's about 100 feet deep. One needs a long rope and a bucket to hoist water out of Jacob's well. But it's been a productive well now for almost 4,000 years. It's still there today. It was hot. It was about noon. Jesus was tired from all this walking. He sat down on the curb of that well, and the disciples went into this little Samaritan town to buy bread. And while they were gone, a woman came to draw. Scholars point out that women did not normally draw water in the middle of the day. It was hot. They usually came to draw water, and it was considered woman's work back then, early morning, late afternoon, and never alone. Women did not get out on the streets alone. In fact, if one saw a woman out by herself, it was generally conceded that she probably was a prostitute. Nice women didn't walk alone in the streets, and they didn't go to draw water at noon. The second important thing about that was she was a woman. When the disciples came back, they didn't say, wow, he's talking to a Samaritan. They said, wow, he's talking to a woman. If you really want to understand a little bit more about that, you might be helped by how Muslim women today are to be treated. Last Tuesday, I was at the Kanipa board trustees meeting at noon. There's a Muslim woman at that meeting whom I've known for over 20 years. I consider her a very special friend. But I know it is not proper to stick out my hand to shake hers. She's not supposed to be touched by any other man, and I don't ever shake hands with her. I greet her, and she greets me. We do not touch. So there are a lot of things going against this woman. We learn a little bit later that she's had five husbands and she's living with another man now. She hasn't even bothered to marry. So this is a woman who has a lot of problems. We know right off she has a lot of problems. This is the season of Lent. It's for all of us who have problems. Bishop Woody White preached from this very pulpit some years ago at annual conference. He was not one of our Barton Clinton Gordy presenters, but he had been invited to come and be the conference preacher at annual conference. Powerful, powerful preacher. And when he retired, Candler School of Theology, Emory University, asked him to come and be bishop in residence. And he's still very active in teaching there now. He had an article in United Methodist Reporter about Lent. And in that article alluded to a song that Frank Sinatra made very popular called My Way. It brought back memories. A physician, member of our church, died. I didn't ever remember seeing him in our church the whole time I'd been here, but he was a member. He had a second wife, and if she had ever been here, she certainly didn't register in. 
But now he had died, and I went to the funeral home to meet her. As we started talking about the service, she wanted Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't do that kind of song in funerals at Boston Avenue. Well, we will, she said. No, you won't, I said. I said, I can help you pick out some really appropriate music from our Methodist hymn book or music that's generally considered classical, but that's the only music we do at funerals at Boston Avenue because this is a worship service, and it's not about my way. It's about God's way. Well, Bishop White was remembering the lines, regrets, I've had a few, but then too few to mention. I was always amazed Frank Sinatra could sing that with a straight face. <laughs> and Bishop Woody White said, that certainly isn't the way I feel. I have regrets more than a few. And Lent is a time for me to fess up about my inadequacies. Number two, Jesus said, everyone who drinks the water you're hauling up out of that well will be thirsty again. We live in a consumer's society where we are bombarded from the moment we open our eyes in the morning until we close them at night with advertisements telling you you need more stuff. You need to go more places. You deserve the best. You deserve the best. It's really difficult for God to get through to us that all this stuff that we want just makes us want more stuff. But Lent is about re-examining the things that really matter and the things that do not. In the next three months, I've got to clean out my office. I've been in that office 33 years, and it's a lot like moving out of your house. I got a lot of books I've accumulated the last 50 years, and I'm going to have to start giving books away. But I've accumulated a lot of trophies through the years, and they're absolutely worthless to anybody else. There comes a time when you just have to throw it all away. It meant something when somebody gave it to me, when somebody said kind words and presented those things to me. But there comes a time when you simply have to leave them behind to acknowledge that they're really not of any value to anybody else. No value whatsoever that we just keep on accumulating stuff there come times in our lives when we have to be reminded this stuff matters so little. Rick Hamlin has written that he and his wife have two sons. And when these boys were seven and four, he was in a long meeting one morning. And when he got out of the meeting, he was checking his messages. And here was one from his wife saying, Rick, I've just got a call from the nursery school. Our Tim has been hurt. I'm on the way. 
Tim was the four-year-old. He said, as I went through my other messages, here was another from my wife saying, I guess you're still in the meeting. It's worse than we thought. Tim and I are on the way to the hospital. So he said, with that, I rushed to my car, rushed to the hospital, and as I went in toward the emergency room, there were two physicians standing in the hall. And I heard one say to the other, can you believe that? One four-year-old ran into another with a tricycle and broke the femur in the other kid's leg. That's the big one in the thigh. And he said, when I got to the room, it was our Timothy. It was he who had the broken femur. And the doctor was saying, this is a major bone. He will have to be in traction for a month. And I said, but we can do that at home, can't we? And he said, no. He will need to be in the hospital for a month. So he said, they got our son all fixed up, and I volunteered to take the first night. So my wife went home to look after our seven-year-old. We'd had something to eat, hospital food, and I turned on the television, hoping he could get off to sleep. He looked so little in that big bed with his right leg hoisted up into the air with a, with a cable running through a pulley with a weight on the other end. It looked terribly uncomfortable. I turned out the lights, hoping maybe his watching television, he'd get off to sleep. And suddenly I heard, Dad. I said, yes. I moved in closer to him, and he said, Dad, we're stuck. I said, beg your pardon? And he said, Dad, we're stuck. And I said, we'll be fine. Try to get some sleep. But as he dozed off to sleep, Rick says, I sat there in my chair and thought, we are stuck. I'd do anything to make my child well in the next 30 minutes. This is going to be a long month for him, lying there on his back with one leg hoisted up in the air for a month. It's going to be a long month. And then Rick has written, but there have been a lot of times in my life when I felt I'm stuck. There's no way I can get me out of this. And it's those moments, more than any other maybe, when I know how important it is that we be connected to the one who can get us unstuck, the one who can really help us. Okay, number three, very important part. The woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. I've always suspected that poets who write beautiful poetry about small towns never lived in one. I grew up six miles outside a small town. And small towns can be hateful, mean, mean-spirited. 
I had wonderful teachers. I had really wonderful Sunday school teachers. But there were others in my hometown who were hateful. I was one of the plant kids, which meant I lived at the compressor station. I rode a school bus every day for 12 years. Never had a car of my own. Rode a school bus. Had to wait by the side of the highway. And the school bus stopped. The kids who got on with me from those four little company houses were the last ones on the bus. The bus was full. It's not unusual for us to have to stand up on the way to town. All the others on the bus were country kids, farm kids. But as far as the ones in town were concerned, everybody that got off a bus was a farm kid. And they made fun. In the first grade, I remember the town kids wore blue jeans. Those of us who lived out of town wore striped overalls. And they made fun. Well, they can be, they can be picky and little. But I tell you this, if this woman lived in a small town 2,000 years ago and she had had five husbands and was living with a man she wasn't even married to at that point, everybody knew all about her. What she really means, I think, is I've met somebody who knew all about me and it didn't seem to matter. It didn't seem to be the most important thing. The more important thing seemed to be, what about today and what about tomorrow? What about today and what about tomorrow? Not what about yesterday? As we build this tableau for you, these few weeks of Lent, I hope you're noticing things added every week. We began with old rugged crosses. We added 30 pieces of silver. This week we've added these horrible crowns of thorns. We have banners for the season that I've told you are designed to help you remember Ash Wednesday when a thumb was pulled across your forehead and then moved from top to bottom. A thumb with ashes. From dust you came to dust you shall return. And it's from that beginning that we can appropriately move toward Easter Sunday when God finally dealt with what Paul called the last great enemy, death. How do we move from the ashes of death to everlasting life? And this reminded me of four months ago when the superstorm plowed into New Jersey and New York. And you may remember at that time, one of the communities hard hit was called Breezy Point, New York. Not only did they have the horrible surge of waters from the Atlantic, but as these waters and winds came on shore, they blew down electric wires. As the houses were shifted and moved from their foundations, natural gas pipes were torn in two and more than a hundred houses burned to the ground. And in the middle of those 100 houses, there was a Roman Catholic church that burned to the ground. 
But when people could get back in, they found that amidst all this rubble of the Catholic Church, there was a statue of the Holy Mother still standing. And as Catholics came back to see what had happened to their church, the Monsignor said to them, Look carefully. This is a sign and symbol to you and me that out of the ashes comes resurrection. That when we were forced from our homes, God never left. I love that. I met a man who knew all about me, and it didn't seem to be the most important thing yesterday. How about today, this afternoon, tomorrow? Number four. Here again, our translators have tried to help you, but if you're willing to do a little bit of study, you're going to find they put in a word that's not helpful. It's this little word, he. When she said, I know Messiah's coming, and Jesus said to her, it's translated, I am he. In the Greek, there is no he. No, John is trying to say something different. He is saying, I am. As at the burning bush, I am. I know Messiah's coming. I am. The God of the burning bush is in Jesus of Nazareth. The real stuff of the Almighty is in Christ. Denise Allen lives in Norman, Oklahoma. She has written a little bit about her own life. And I want you choir members to hear this. Denise said when she was in the eighth grade, she was a part of the in crowd of girls. And then one day at the lunchroom, her friends started treating her differently. One of them said, take my tray to the window, slave. And the other started to giggle. I took my tray, she said, then I took hers. And when I got back to the table, another one of them said, Take mine too, slave. And when I didn't want to, they all started giggling and got up and walked away. So I decided I needed some different friends. But I chose the wrong ones. The next day, when I got to the lunchroom, sort of looking around, Another group of girls invited me over, and I sat down with them. They were really nice to me. And between classes later, one of the girls offered me a draw on her cigarette. I was invited to a birthday party, and one of them gave me part of her can of beer. I was in the eighth grade. And then at one of the other's birthday parties, they offered me a draw, a little bit of marijuana. And I spiraled down into addiction. The next four years, I hardly remember. But I managed to graduate from high school, and it only got worse. And one night, 
wrecked my father's car, was picked up driving under the influence, and sent to two weeks in jail. My parents had had enough, and they did not rescue me. I was in jail for two weeks. But it was during that time in jail, one of those lonely nights when I could hear noise up and down the cell block, that I cried out in my deepest heart to God. And something said, if you'll just tell the judge you're really sorry, and you are, and you promise to go to rehab, and you will, he'll let you out of jail. Well, he didn't reduce my sentence, she said. I stayed two weeks, but the judge said I had some good ideas, and he hoped I would follow up on that, and I did go into rehab, and I really was serious. I started trying to work the program. It was something about entrusting as much of me as I knew how to as much of a higher power as I could comprehend. And I did that. And the next day I did it again. And the next day I did it again. And after being sober for three years, I felt I really needed to know more about that higher power. So I asked one of the women I knew, and she told me about a church there in Norman. I'd seen it. Big. Beautiful. About a women's prayer group. Bible study. I really wanted to know more about this higher power. So I went that morning. Drove up into the parking lot. I was 10 minutes early. And then I saw the other cars, and I looked at mine. I saw how these women who were going into that church were dressed, and I looked at me. I didn't look like them, and my car certainly didn't look like theirs. I was about to start my car and drive away when I thought of something they teach you in AA. And that is, don't follow one bad decision with another. Follow one good decision with another good decision. They teach you to do the next right thing. If you don't know what you're going to do after that, just do the next right thing. And I felt that power, power drawing me out of my car, whispering to my deepest heart, do the next right thing. And I got out of the car and started toward the church. <laughs>